Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Um, I just told my guest off off mic that if my voice sounds a little different, I am I am uh, battling a cold. I have a little bit of a sinus infection. Everybody cares about the fighting in Ukraine. Nobody cares about me fighting this cold. Okay, Adam. Nobody cares about my battles. Why does nobody care about my battles, Adam? Um, the Adam that I'm referring to and, and, uh, uh, that is the great guest that I have for you today. It's Adam Fitzgerald. He's the host of the darkened hour podcast. And he is a, um, you know, he's, he's very well informed in a particular topic that I have kind of avoided talking about on this podcast just because there's so much shit to talk about. With uh, it's nine eleven that I'm, I'm referring to. There's so much shit that you can dive into with that that I have just kind of avoided the casserole of information and the narrative and the chronology of the entire thing because it's it's complex and I again I just I don't know if I have the intellectual capacity to put together a a cogent narrative surrounding the the entire thing. But before we jump into this, Adam, tell everybody where they can find you on social media. Tell everybody where they can listen to your podcast. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, well, you could just Google my name, Adam Fitzgerald, nine 11. I, I happen to pop right up, but on Twitter it's underscore Adam Fitzgerald and YouTube is Adam Fitzgerald. And the podcast is, uh, the dark and dour on my Twitter account. If you want to access, uh, like a cache of files and documents you need to upload, I have a WordPress there. There's a link right in the uh, profile where it will lead you to the board WordPress link and you can download the uh, files uh, and documents at leisure. I think currently I have about 4,000 right now. Yeah, you have it pinned on your uh, on your Twitter account. If you just go to his Twitter account, it's his first, uh, it's his pinned tweet and there's just thousands of documents that you can look over. Um, but we won't start with 9-11. Let's start with... Well, one, I want to get your take on some really good news, in my opinion. Uh, you know, it's horrible news. I'm sure everybody's real beat up, you know, at the news that I have a cold. But Hillary Clinton has COVID, so maybe that'll kill her, right? I mean, maybe maybe Hillary Clinton will die in 2022, finally. Is this the year, folks? Adam, is this the year? Are you happy about this news? Well, it's, uh, well it can't be visited on a more deserving person. Yeah, <laughs> uh, basically destroyed Libya in the process. So why not have uh, COVID militants destroy her from within? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Have an insurgency from within. Have a have an attack from within. Well, listen, one of the things that I actually wanted to get your uh, opinion about, you know, and I'm not even going to jump into the Ukraine Russia thing because I've just talked about it ad nauseum with, you know, guests and just by myself. Not that I'm not interested in your opinion, but I'm more interested in what you would have to say about, you know, there's been some talks surrounding like this global realignment, this, um, you know, and, and, and this this uh, new positioning of 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 geopolitical powers. And one of the things that's happening at the moment is uh, uh, speaking of 9-11, Saudi Arabia is not calling or he's not they're not picking up the phone for Biden 
They are seem to be interested in doing a lot of business with China. They have, really don't have any. It seems like they want to move away from the deal that they made with us, with the old the whole petrodollar thing. You know, what do you make of this shift? Is this something that is going to be permanent or or at least long lasting? It's gonna is it gonna affect the global economy? Is this kind of just a you know, a, a temporary thing or an inconsequential thing. What do you make of this? Well, it's a position for a power play here. Saudi Arabia is basically telling the United States in no uh, short order that they are the controllers and the maneuvers of uh, controlling their own oil instead of the United States actually uh, trying to regulate the oil, which they believed for many decades. Uh, but Saudi Arabia does hold the power in regards to that. In fact, back in the early 1980s, when there was an oil shortage in the United States, it was the United States that basically suffered and the oil prices shot up exponentially. Well, the United States basically finds itself in quite a conundrum here, so to speak. Uh, the United States just last year under the Biden administration basically uh, tried to force the issue about pushing for more barrels of oil per day, which Saudi Arabia under Prince Crown Prince bin Salman basically said that they wouldn't push the issue itself and so the United States has been moving that tape of arrogance forward. And so what happened was the Saudi Arabian government basically said that they would not uh, take an issue with the current Ukraine crisis. Incidentally enough, Israel basically decided to play mediator in this. Uh, I saw that. That is fucking hilarious. That's another argument to be made there. And I have a lot to say on that regard. But nevertheless, uh, to push... Uh, some pressure on Saudi Arabia. Last year, uh, President Biden issued an executive order about a release of extra documents relating to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. And just as Saudi Arabia made that declaration, uh, days later, a new release, a cachet of information, which is actually proven. This is, uh, I'm, I'm stunned at the lack of attention about the latest documents. And I just did a video this morning about how important these documents are. It basically shows what some of us basically knew all along was that the Saudi government uh, basically were sending money to affiliates in the United States that were going to certain hijackers involved with the September 11th attacks. One of them was Omar al-Bayoumi, who was living in California, who was giving payments to Khalid al-Midar and Nawab Hazmi and Hani Hanjour. Those are three hijackers involved with the uh, hijacking of Flight 77 and allegedly 93. So we have it on uh, on these files. Now, there, a lot of it's redacted, but the files that I showed this morning basically show the illumination of this uh, very important story, but it went right under the radar. And that's basically because uh, both countries have a lot to hide in regards to 9-11. But make no mistake, uh, this was at best, this was at best a, a, uh, a threat by the United States to Saudi Arabia to basically say, hey, we are the people that basically control the oil regulation in your country, and you'll do as we say. So that's what I think is happening here. Now, how long do you think that they wanted to do this? I mean, because, you know, I've always gotten the impression that the Saudis, you know, were, they, they, us and the Saudis were never really aligned ever, like culturally, like we did, we were, we were never, I feel like a lot of Americans don't understand that, we are not allies with the Saudis like we're allies with the United Kingdom. You know, these are two completely different entities. And um, 
you know, it it does seem certainly in the years, you know, since certainly since 2020 with the inflation bullshit, and then who, who, under it was under Trump, right? Was or was it under Trump or Biden when technically those documents were supposed to be released? It was Trump. It was Trump, and then he pushed it back. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, it, it seems like the Saudis have been kind of annoyed with Americans. Uh, or the American uh, government for the past like ten years, they don't they they you know they're a very wealthy nation. They have no interest in you know our uh, imperialist intentions as far as spreading democracy. They really don't have any intention. They they have no they don't care about that, you know. And they and they in I'm sure at some level think it's quite bullshit, but. You know this this move by Saudi Arabia saying, "Hey, let's we'll f- hey fuck you, we'll move to China. We don't give a shit." Um, I think it I think it shows a major weakness in the geopolitical strategy that's been set up since George H W Bush, um, and uh, you know this 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 strategy where we befriend certain people who are not really allies, but they are willing to do business with us type of thing, right? Where we fund like Islamic jihadists in Syria and, and, you know, we, we, we back neo-Nazis in Ukraine. It's like, this is, seems to be uh, coming to fruition where those, those deals where we were doing business with people who didn't necessarily like us, but they happened to back one particular goal of ours, it seems to be coming back, uh, coming back to bite us in the ass. And when I say us, I mean Americans, but not really Americans. You know what I mean by us? The fucking, you know, the people making the decisions without fucking our consent. I didn't give consent. Okay, I didn't. No, I was fucking five when nine eleven happened. You know, but so with all this happening, with all this this coming to fruition, what is the best case scenario as as far as America? coming out of of this war is it a is it a peace deal with ukraine and russia and then everybody settles down again is it a a a victory where putin just gives up which i don't foresee but let's just pretend it is like what is the best case scenario with this with this situation for america well i mean that obviously there is going to be two different thoughts regarding this that's the people and the government as you just alluded to and um, I think we could both agree that what's going to happen is basically going to uh, be precluded by the government itself. Look, people generally are uh, frown against uh, the face of war. We saw a large outcry in uh, 2003 by the global uh, public about the Iraq war, but that shut down over time. And um, generally what happens is that uh, all-out war is basically frowned on, but proxy war is basically ignored. Uh, I think what's going to happen here with the Ukraine is basically going to be Afghanistan 2.0, where the United States, through the CIA and other covert military means, are going to be funding these uh, uh, ultra-nationalists in Ukraine. And also at the same time, uh, from reports coming from people like Richard Medhurst, uh, which are now reporting that Syrian jihadists are now entering the fray because they haven't forgotten what Russia did to the Islamic State in cities like Raqqa and Diaz Azur in Syria, where they basically, because thankfully, because of Iran and Russia, they basically destroyed and disseminated 
much of the Islamic State's influence in the country. But the Syrian jihadists has never forgot that. So they're now entering the fray, thanks to the Prime Minister of the, of the United Kingdom, uh, who basically said that we welcome any type of foreign influence to come into the country. Well, what does that mean? Foreign influence, anybody to come and basically defeat the evil Russians. Well, basically that's what we saw in 1980 when the communists basically took over the capital of Kabul in Afghanistan. And who took over? Well, the, the freedom rebels who were basically the Mujahideen who later became groups like Al-Qaeda, Abu Sayyaf, Jaishi, Mohammed, and Boko Haram. And all these groups later became the enemy of the United States because we trained and funded and armed these people at some level, I'm not saying directly, but at some level, and they all came back to bite us in the rear. Now, I'm not going to say and make the declaration that in the future, these ultra-nationalist groups in, the Ukra in Ukraine are basically going to become the new Mujahideen for the rest of the world. But we better be careful that we don't make the same mistake as we did in 1980. That's interesting. I actually, I brought that up, I think it was on one of my solo episodes where I was like, it would be just absolutely ridiculously funny in a dark way where if just a fucking the new 9-11 was just a bunch of neo-nazis <laughs> they just flew a fucking plane straight back into freedom tower i mean for christ it seems like everything and this is what i mean like it's it's like the the business that we do overseas the people that we tend to align ourselves with are just the usually the people who don't necessarily have the best um you know moral intentions but because they align with with our goals on one particular thing it's we go hey you hey we're in you're it you and us it's, it's it, we're very impulsive it's a very impulsive geopolitical strategy we have a very impulsive and nearsighted political strategy in my opinion where we we're willing to just openly or and in some ways yes quite openly fund neo-nazis in ukraine and and not really you know, we do it with some type of impunity and we don't, ha you know, it's like we, we we don't think about the longevity of of how this plays out. And, you know, I think anybody with a brain knew how this situation was going to end in Ukraine, um, you know, and, and there were people saying this in, you know, 2015, John Mearsheimer was saying this over and over and over and over. Uh, George Cannon in 1997 said it in an article in New York Times uh, you know, this is not new. And so, you know, this is, again, this seems to be just another, you know, uh, play it out situation of the nearsightedness of American foreign policy. Would you agree? Uh, not only would I agree, but, you know, much, much like most of the people in the United States, before this invasion even happened, I knew next to nothing about Ukraine and uh, the history of the United States involved with Ukraine. And uh, when I saw this story become very uh, polarized, I decided to basically do some due diligence and learn about what is actually happening because I don't watch TV, so I don't get my information from the You don't news. watch any TV? No, I haven't had no a TV Netflix? in 13 years. Wow. What do you do for, what do you do for fun? Uh, unfortunately, um, I'm a 9-11 researcher, and I spend about four to five days each day um, looking over really? files and talking. Yeah. Wow. I do. I spend more time. Well, I'm single. So I have the only thing I have most, I tell people, most, most thing I have over most people is time. So I have the time and the means to read uh, documents and files and books about 
Middle East foreign policy, culture, and stuff like that. And right. I, I take it to another level than most people do. And I have you're, to. You're single like the single tower that stands at what once was a coupled tower. Indeed, but I was not divorced like it was on 9-11 by force. <laughs> yeah. So no, well, uh, that, technically that was a couple, you know, they just, yeah. they both died. They both died. Yeah. Right? It, not, not at their own volition, no less. So it is, we, let me ask you something. Let's just jump in. I, cause I was going to, I was going to hold off on nine 11, but I don't, I don't want to anymore. Um, you know, before we move forward, I want to get your very summated opinion on what exactly nine 11 was. Was it a, false flag operation created by intelligence american intelligence coupled with foreign intelligence for purposes of 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 going into the middle east it, was it a thing where our intelligence realized this is this is something that is you know it's it's being created in the middle east we can capitalize on this and we can use it to our advantage was it purely an economic thing was i mean tell me what you think 9-11 was and, and what it, it it was meant to do this is a this is a question i'm often asked but um i always say that 9-11 could not be possibly explained in five to ten minutes uh but just to appease your audience and yourself i'll try to do the best i can to explain uh the attacks of September 11, 2001, and why it happened. And basically, all terrorist attacks, whether it's 2001 or 1993, or the Millennium Plot of 2000, um, the 1998 Israel bombings, Kobar Towers of 96, these attacks basically are coming from, not from the religious sector, okay? These are people purporting to be religious, but they're hardly anything but. These are people who are politically motivated, uh, apolitically motivated by the foreign policies of the United States and Israel, the West. I'll just keep it short. Now, what is it about our policy that makes people do the things that they do when it comes to like fanatic uh, fundamentalist terrorist acts to, to have somebody to come and basically wear a bomb belt or to have somebody create an operation where they gotta have certain people willing to kill themselves in order to kill others. I mean, that's just on that alone is in itself is to get somebody to believe it and to mean it is uh, just one issue, but they're reacting and they're telling you something. So what are they saying? You have to listen. Well, in 1993, uh, during the, after the World Trade Center bombing, uh, Ramzi Youssef, who is the lead uh, suspect in that, he gave an hour-long statement before he was sentenced. And I dare people to read it because here we have somebody who's willing to state to you why he's doing what he was doing. And in it, he basically didn't address whether women were wearing dresses or whether men were too secular or whether the governments were too secular. No, that had nothing to do with it. It had everything to do with the United States foreign policy to Arabs in the Middle East. And he basically pointed out the Gulf War, where the United States, through the Oil for Food program, killed approximately 500,000 men, women, and children. Now, I'm sure everybody here in your audience have heard that uh, famous very um, global soundbite of 
Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, where she basically tells in a 60 Minutes interview whether the price was worth it to go into the war. And she basically says, in no uncertain terms, yes, I think the price was worth it. In other words, it was worth it to kill 500,000 men, women, and children. Why? Because who cares about the Arab people? All right. What does that tell you? That tells you that the people in charge of this country are willing to slaughter half a million people because they feel it was worth it to get rid of a dictator or to try to get rid of a dictator. I think that's absurd. And I think that's sociopathic. But that's what leads to the United States. 9-11 itself can basically be summed up as a response, a terrorist response, a response by a fringe minority within the Arab community to a foreign policy of the West, the United States, the coalition partners, Great Britain, France, Germany, Israel, and even Saudi Arabia. And in response, we over-exaggerated. And not only did we attack the countries that had nothing to do with 9-11, but we involved more countries over the years that weren't originally attacked. And that comes from, and this ain't just basically a left or right paradigm here where people could get divided over. No, this is a unified government decision. It happened under Bush. It continued under Obama. It continued into Trump and somewhat continued with Biden. I mean, Afghanistan, he pulled out, but we're still in Syria. Um, we're still somewhat in Libya and we're still doing drone strikes in Iraq. And who are we attacking in Iraq? Well, we're attacking the very people who are supposed to be helping us in the war on terror, which is Russia and Iran. But that's another foreign policy that we have yet to exercise, which is against Iran. And that's being pushed by the United States and Israel. So I would say in essence, the 9-11 attacks are basically a response by a fringe minority who are allowed to attack the United States so that we can overextend militarily and enact foreign policy guidelines made during the 1980s and 90s. And of course, future enactments, which basically absolved similar, well, absolved civil liberties, such as privacy laws on the internet. Um, and that's a whole nother discussion as well. And of course, the rendition torture program that came about of it. And most of these people were just poor pastoral farmers in Afghanistan, nothing to do with terrorism. So and that was over, I think, between the year 2003 to about 2008. And the program ended in 2010 under Obama, 2011. Um, it was about 2,800 people that we renditioned and tortured in the CIA planes and taken to Poland, Germany, and Iraq. and you know, brutally tortured for nothing. We got no valuable information in return. And in the and in the end, anyway, it doesn't matter because all the people that we basically blamed for 9-11, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramsey Bin Al-Sheib, Wally Benatash, who are still in Guantanamo, even if they pled guilty, they still can't be used in the court of law because guess what? We tortured them. And maybe that's the reason why they did it in the first place, because we'll never definitively know what happened as long as we always have that question mark over their heads whether they told the truth or not. I think they did it, but they were allowed to do it so that we can respond militarily and enact all these uh, previous foreign policy guidelines of the 80s and 90s. I mean, we're seeing it anyway. Uh, what did Iraq have to do with 9-11? We basically lied about that war and over 1.3 million died in that war. Um, Syria, what did they have to do with 9-11? Libya, what did they have to do with 9-11? Sudan, Iraq, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Sudan, uh, Pakistan, we drone struck. I mean, all these countries are basically uh, almost thoroughly destroyed. And for what? 
to and fight that the was, war there. And that was after Pakistan. Wasn't it? I, if I'm not mistaken, Pakistan, we were allowed to use their airspace in our mm. search of uh, of uh, Barack Obama. Yeah, I'm sounding, I'm sounding, I'm sounding like a fucking conservative in 2008. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Uh, no, Osama bin Laden. They said you could use their fucking airspace. Yes. I mean, Jesus Christ! And you know, one of the things too, I th I forget who I took. Maybe Scott Horton. I heard this from. Um, you know that that I think it was this debate during. Uh, it was the debate that he had with Bill Crystal. They were talking about 9/11. And uh, he talked about how a, a lot, like a big motivator behind 9/11 was the Operation Grapes of Wrath, mm. um, which was a an Israeli bombing of a, of a I think it was a was it a hospital or a, a fuck I can't even I can't even remember, but it was a, a something in in a, it was a hospital it was civilians civilians died women and children died. And I think it was in Lebanon, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, it 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 was kind of the main driver behind the reason Muhammad Atta went along with with this fucking you know with Osama bin Laden and 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 what he had in store for America. And it's like you know I, I think you do have a good point in the sense that the the torture did take care; it sabotaged the you know the the any prospects of 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 probing why they did this and i think they did that on purpose i think there was a two-tiered thing where they just got to torture the shit out of these people and and then it also you know got rid of the fact that hey we can't hey no questions here and you know because they i think they knew that a lot of people would not like the answer um as far as the actual extent uh, of of knowledge of the plot that that you know, intelligence and the government had. I mean, what do you think this was? Was it something where where we were, you know, there's a lot of people who who like to involve themselves in this conversation, in this 9-11 conspiracy conversation where they go, oh, you know, we we just did it. We planned it on ourselves. A lot of people think that we were just, you know, we were more complicit or or in the sense that, you know, we, we saw this coming and we were like, well, you know, let's not... You know, let's not put a hundred percent effort in stopping this. You know, there were there were there was a document. It even made it to Netflix. There was a Netflix documentary about how there was reports made to um, high-ranking officials in in our intelligence community that that this there was a plot to to do this and it was ignored. You know, how much knowledge do you think that our government had prior to the attack? They had plenty, actually. In fact, I'll even echo the sentiments of former senior executive Thomas Drake of the NSA. He basically said that the NSA alone had so much metadata uh, regarding the 9-11 uh, operatives inside the United States and abroad in Germany that th that agency alone, that operation alone that they had, could have stopped 9-11 altogether. Now, what, if, what was he talking about? Now, this is something that very few people, I think myself, uh, my co-researcher, DJ Thurma Deadnator, uh, Scott Horton, um, I think Robbie Martin basically alluded to this, Paul Thompson, very few people, Kevin Fenton, Ray Nolowiski. These are the very few people I can name off the top of my head. Brian Dawson is another, where we um, basically alludicate that the intelligence services of like the NSA and the CIA had collected 
an enormous amount of intelligence about the operatives of al-Qaeda involved with the 9-11 attacks years prior to 9-11. For example, um, the NSA had begun wiretapping Osama bin Laden's phone back in 1992, and they he would get regularly these phones over the United States, and they were all decrypted phones. Uh, one such phone was given to him by uh, Hamas operatives through an unrelated uh, uh, FBI investigation, and that phone was traveled to Virginia, then it went to Afghanistan. But the FBI was doing a separate investigation into Hamas, basically told the NSA, hey, could you uh, monitor that phone? We're basically doing an investigation. They involved them. And they said, sure, and it was an encrypted phone. And it was right into the hands of Osama bin Laden. And they monitored over 230 phone calls made on this phone. And a lot of them came from a house in Yemen, in the capital of Sana'a. And basically, this house was basically owned by a person by the name of Ahmed al-Hada, who basically was an associate of Osama bin Laden during Afghanistan war. And this house became the al-Qaeda communications hub throughout the world. A lot of communications came to this house. The NSA started bugging that phone, monitoring that phone and all the phone calls of that phone. So they started monitoring that phone from 1996 to 2001, five years prior to the attacks. Bin Laden's satellite phone, six years prior to the attacks. I tell your audience, what do you think they were talking about on those phones? They weren't talking about cookies. They weren't Pussy. talking about Yankees. Yeah, they weren't talking, yeah, of course. They were talking about operations. Not only that, that's how the NSA involved the CIA. The CIA started doing human intelligence because the NSA doesn't do human intelligence. So they started looking, they started monitoring the house, seeing who comes in and out of the house. Well, guess who started, guess who was living there? One of the 9-11 hijackers, Khalid al-Midar, because he was married to the daughter of the owner of the house, uh, Ahmed al-Hada. So they started running an investigation. So they started collecting an enormous amount of data about who's coming in and out of the house. So for five years, they noticed that two men uh, were speaking on a phone and that they were going to a very high-level meeting in Malaysia, and that this meeting was going to have so many high-level terrorists attending this meeting. The NSA told the CIA about this. And so the CIA basically told the Malaysian authorities where the uh, meeting was going to take place and told them to take pictures of everybody that was coming in and out of the house. So these two men that were inside the house uh, talking about this on the phone were Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. Those two men were involved with the hijacking of American Airlines Flight 77. So they went to the meeting. And in that meeting was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi Ben Al-Sheib, Wali Ben Atash, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi Yusuf, um, Ramzi Ben Al-Sheib, um, uh, Nawaf Al-Hazmi, his brother, Salim Al-Hazmi, Ridwin Ismudin, who's Hambali. All these guys are big names, huge names in the terrorist category. So they started taking pictures of all the people for two days straight sent it to the CIA. CIA found out that two of the hijackers had US visas coming to the United States. It says right there in New York, um, I'm sorry, Los Angeles, they were coming. So the FBI who were inside this uh, counterterrorism uh, unit called Alex Station, which was a nickname for the Bin Laden issue station, which is a big virtual station involving the CIA, which was running it, the NSA, the FBI, the DIA, all these uh, agencies that were involved in collecting data and sharing with one another. Well, the CIA basically uh, told uh, the NSA to keep monitoring the cell phone of uh, Nawaf al-Hazmi. However, when the FBI read the cable and said that they were coming inside the United States hijackers, 
they ran to the computer and tried to warn uh, the headquarters in Washington, D.C., two hijackers come to the United States. But because it's CIA information, they had to get approval before sending it. Well, the deputy chief of Alex Station is Tom Wilshire. He basically saw the cable and asked Michelle Ann Casey, who's a case officer in charge of the Yemen hub, the Yemen communications hub operation, and told her, tell Doug Miller, the FBI agent wrote the cable, to please hold off per Wilshire. So the cable wasn't sent. So Mark Rossini, who I've interviewed on my podcast, I basically asked him why. He says that he went to Michelle Ann Casey and said, why is the cable not being sent? And she said to him, it is not an FBI matter. When we want the FBI to know, we'll let them know. Right now, we think the next terrorist attack is happening in Southeast Asia. So they kept this information from the FBI and the State Department for 16 months. While they were inside the United States, seemingly unaware that anybody knew what they were inside the United States. However, while they were inside the United States, Saudi officials like Omar al-Bayoumi, Osama Basnan, Fahad al-Tamari, uh, Saeed uh, al-Jara, all the, Muasid al-Jara, all these people started giving them funding, money, cars, apartments, you know, to basically live inside the United States freely and to get access to ID cards and whatnot. FBI had no idea. They finally found out in August of 2001 at a national principals meeting when the CIA director, George Tenet, basically said, oh, by the way, there are two hijackers and uh, there are two Al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States. Unbelievable. You know what it's like, you know, because I, I, I see similarities with, you know, how much knowledge that our intelligence community had in 9-11. It's the same thing with like the Boston bombing mm. um, where the FBI like knew those two that like they were on their radar and there were records of them being on their radar for like two years prior. I mean, it's it's pretty insane. You know, I mean, you you look at this and then you, you, you so you tie in, you know, all this intelligence that they had you know, having to do with 9-11, both 9-11, the Boston bombing. And then you also, you know, add the layer of the fact that the FBI has been caught trying to almost create, you know, terrorists where there hasn't been like the uh, the Sammy Osmocat case in Florida where they took this Albanian, somewhat mentally ill and not very bright kid and kind of, you know, with, with FBI informants and FBI agents kind of convinced him to to pull what ended up being a, a false flag attack so they could arrest him. It's like, what is what is the goal here with all of this? Like, you know, basically being complicit or certainly seeming seemingly being complicit in, in these terrorist attacks, attempt, uh, <coughs> attempting to create, uh, you know, domestic terrorists where there doesn't necessarily have to be one. Like, what is the goal here? Like, why, like, what do they get out of this? Well, there's, there's numerous uh, elements involved in this is because it isn't just basically just about foreign policy, but also uh, the continuation of war. Um there's, uh, I mean, in order for government to enact its war powers, it needs a conflict. And those war powers supersede the Constitution. And so because of 9-11, we basically allowed 
through our own ignorance, the American people, because we wanted revenge. We allowed for these invasive privacy laws to basically subjugate the American people in the process. For example, uh, in November of 2001, in response to the attacks, what most people don't know is that White House legal counsel lawyers like John Yu and David Attenborough, who basically uh, allowed for the powers of the State Department through the president to label who is a terrorist and who is not. Usually that's the Department of Justice. That's why John Ashcroft, when he heard about this, basically tried to run and meet with the president. But during that week of November, the first week of November, he basically took a vacation conveniently and left the, uh, the, uh, the bull by its horns with Dick Cheney, the vice president. So Ashcroft basically was facing uh, Cheney. And, you know, the running joke in Washington was that if uh, Cheney dies, Bush could become president because Cheney basically was the president of the United States. And that's the reason why, you know, most people don't uh, give President Bush any serious connotation regarding who governed the country. Uh, Cheney was a lot more um, powerful. I think he's actually still the most powerful vice president we've ever had in office. Needless to say, in November of that year, the State Department uh, through the White House Legal Counsel made it legal for the United States to label anybody a terrorist, uh, anybody who's an enemy combatant to be labeled a terrorist. Now, remember those definitions, that's a loose definition. Who, what is a terrorist? What is an enemy combatant? Is it an Arab? Is it a terrorist like an Arab fundamentalist? No, it doesn't say that in the legislature. It basically says enemy combatant. That means that anybody who opposes the president or, or is a, an aggressor to the United States can be labeled an enemy combatant or a terrorist. That means in the future, if you dare to say that you are against certain governments or certain political parties, who knows in the future, you could be the enemy combatant, you could be the terrorist. And that's exactly the reason why they left the definition very open and they knew what they were doing. And so what did they do with that? They basically said that anybody who's deemed an enemy combatant or a terrorist can no longer be afforded the Geneva Convention no longer under those protections. So that means indefinite detention without a lawyer. And that means they can hold you indefinitely. And you're not allowed to hear what you're being detained for. Now, just today, um, I think it was um, John Conyers who basically argued with, uh, I, I forgot who it was, about the use of indefinite detention where he basically says, well, why not? Why don't we just jail people and keep them there forever. He's basically meaning the Guantanamo 5 that's being charged for 9-11. Because right now, the United States is basically brokering a deal with them, suggesting that we'll take the death penalty off the table if you just plead guilty for 9-11. Well, they've been there for the past 19 years uh, and held without um, most of it without being prosecuted for. And their defense attorneys are salivating at the bit because they know that whatever they confessed under torture can't be used against them. And so they would have to be let free. Can you imagine? So that's the reason why. I'm just using that one example. I mean, I, I can't tell you the amount of well, invasive the, laws that they yeah, passed over the, the years. obvious one, the, the blaring one, is the Patriot Act. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, and, and you know what's very interesting about the Patriot Act was, uh, you know, this was, this was passed almost unanimously, um, you know, because everybody was all riled up 
They, no, they don't want no Muslims flying no planes into no more buildings, okay? We got a little riled up, so we said, okay, you know what? For the, you know, this because it was supposed to be temporary, remember? It was supposed to be a temporary sure. thing to sort of weed out whatever terrorists we had in the homeland. And, um, you know, it's, you know, it's still here. It's only expanded. But what was very interesting about the anthrax attacks, if you remember correctly, folks, is that the two uh, members of Congress who had the anthrax sent to them were the two that were opposed to. And now they eventually, after that anthrax got mailed to them, they came around. But they were first opposed to the Patriot Act. And I forget their names, but one of them was, and I know this, he was from South Dakota because that's my home state. Um, I forget his name, but Tom Daschle and um, Shelby. Tom Daschle, that's who it was. I kept seeing. I would always see his fucking commercials when I was growing up. Um, yes, yes, and and so you know, is that a coincidence that the, those two senators that happen to oppose the most invasive uh, surveillance act that's ever been passed in the history of America? Uh, they got a little anthrax sent through mail. Is it, a, you know, hey, listen, I'm not here to speculate. I've, I have Adam Fitzgerald on here. We're, we're talking whole, cold, hard facts here, folks. I don't have to fucking speculate, okay? I'm not going to speculate on whether or not this was, you know, you know whether that Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, uh, that one guy, the one guy who was said to do it. Because remember, they blamed it on the one guy. I forget his name. I forget all these people's names. Um, but there were multiple scientists, chemists uh, uh, that came out and said it would be very odd that one man could create that type of toxic spiked anthrax. Um, you know, you'd, you'd need a team of people to do it. And and even then, it'd be very hard to get it that, um, you know, that invasive, that that toxic. Um, and it's it's just very bizarre how a lot of this information sort of went unnoticed. I don't know if it went unnoticed at the time, maybe. And I would, because I wasn't, again, I was not politically, you know, locked in in 2001, 2002. I was busy, I don't know what, I was six. I was blowing bubbles in the backyard and, you know, whatever. So I wasn't, so I don't know if this was, information that just went completely unnoticed or if it went like if there was news coverage and then it was just forgotten like it, you know because there was a lot of irregularities with the investigation and the 9-11 commission I mean you could tell me like when all this was happening all and all of these oddities all of these holes that could be poked in the narrative was this called out at the time and forgotten or was this just completely swept under the rug well, when it happened, it was pretty much uh, a popular news item. It's global, but the investigation itself was basically uh, less covered. And the FBI basically blamed the person that you forgot, Bruce Ivins, basically was a Bruce. Blamed, uh, yes, that's the guy. Subsequently yeah. blamed for the attacks, and basically they uh, facilitated evidence against him. Meanwhile, he had not um, the uh, the anthrax that was. Uh, created was a uh, gray wet anthrax that basically was um, not the powdery anthrax that's usually commonly uh, produced. This anthrax was basically manipulated through a scientific lab that Ivans did not have at his disposal, but he committed suicide and basically uh, under intense pressure, he lost his job, basically was uh, lambasted in the media as blaming, you know, being named in the attacks and he killed himself and, you know, numerous Friends and family came out later saying that 
uh, he was depressed because he was being blamed for something that uh, he said that there was no evidence for uh, suggesting that he was the, uh, the person who sent the letters. Um, so this anthrax basically, it was traced back to a uh, archive uh, in Iowa State called the Ames Stream, the Ames Stream uh, named after Ames, Iowa. And um, once this uh, was traced back to the archive, the FBI basically told the archivers at Iowa State to destroy the entire archive. And they did. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they destroyed the archive. So why they do it? Why they do that? Yeah. Well, basically, so it's because it doesn't show you that the real perpetrators of sending out those letters would be forever protected. And who would that be? Well, I don't know, to tell you the truth. Didn't uh, they try to blame that. it on, they tried to blame it on uh, uh, people in the Middle East. They tried to blame it on, like, fucking Afghanistan or something, didn't they? Yeah, this was, uh, now, yeah, this comes from twofold, uh, so I have to explain. One was a basically an Israeli intelligence ring that basically facilitated uh, evidence that Mohammed Atta went to Prague and met with Iraqi Baptist officials about uh, procuring chemical and biological weapons such as anthrax. That turned out to be false. So the CIA basically told the Egyptians to detain um, a terrorist by the name of Sheikh Ibn al-Libi. And Sheikh Ibn al-Libi basically was um, um, uh, not so much a terrorist, but he was basically a radical fundamentalist. And he was actually brutally tortured by the Egyptians, where the, he basically were telling him, tell us what you know about uh, Iraq and Al-Qaeda. And he didn't know anything. And so they hung him upside down by wires, by his testicles, by his ankles. And so he told them anything they wanted to hear. And he said they hung him by his balls. They hung him by his testicles. How did they not rip off? Uh, well, I mean, well, at the same time, he was, he's being hung upside down by wire with his ankles. And then they oh, okay. uh, put so cigarettes on his, on his testicles. And, I got you. I got you. So, so, it wasn't, so it wasn't all the weight on the balls. No, was, yeah, uh, right. Jesus, I, mean, I was going to say, but, you got to evenly disperse some of that for Christ. Well, the, the Egyptians are known for their brutal torture methods. And I could, you know, talk about that all day. Needless to say, uh, the CIA got wind of information that he told the Egyptians about uh, Iraqi Baptist officials and al-Qaeda operatives basically uh, making chemical weapons. And that was given to Secretary of State Colin Powell, and he used that as the premise of the United Nations Security Council briefing, which everybody saw. And basically, he even said, when they were in the back talking about this information, is this information valid? And George Tenet basically got up and was talking on the telephone. And so Lawrence Wilkerson, who I've interviewed on the podcast, basically was there and said um, that we were all surprised that Tenet left the table. And when he came back, he said, yes, the information's good. The information wasn't good. When they interviewed Al-Libi, this is after we entered the war in Iraq, they said, why didn't you tell us the truth? And he said, well, I told you what you wanted to hear because you were torturing me. Six months later, he was found dead in a cell in Egypt. So now that he's dead and because we we fabricated all the information, basically, which led to the invasion of the Iraq war, you know, one leads to say, why are we seeing Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, George Bush at the Hague? And that's only because the United States are not co-signers of the international criminal courts conveniently. Maybe that's the reason why we go to war with all these nations. Listen, I'm gonna I'm I have to piss real bad. I'll be right back, okay? Yeah, okay. Please. All right. Sorry, you got me so wound up on that I 9/11 talk. 
I was you talking all that all that fucking we knew about 9/11. Boy, that you know, that gets the energy up a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Uh, you know, I did I didn't even bother talking about uh the CIA separate operation as well as the uh Israelis and Saudis, they had their own operation that was going on so inside the United States as well. Uh but I could talk Regarding about Regarding what? Um when the hijackers first came inside the United States, Khalid al-Midar and al-Azmi, um, the Saudis immediately knew they were monitoring who they were monitoring. Later on, members of the Hamburg cell, these guys that were basically going to a Hamburg in mosque called the Al-Quds, and that was Mohammed Atta, Mohan al-Shi, and Ziyad Jara, they were, came to the United States through Florida. And basically, they were being monitored by the Israelis who were using moving front companies and uh, posing as art students. So they were monitoring these hijackers from afar and keeping tabs on them, whether they were going to New York or New Jersey, they were always being monitored. Same as the Saudis out West, whether they were going to California or Arizona, they were always meeting up with Saudi government officials. So how did they know who to monitor these people unless they were running their own separate operations or the NSA and the CIA basically allowed them to come into the operation and monitor them, you know, into, you know, into the operation. I don't know for sure, you know, if they were running their own operation or they were one part of one big operation, but we do know that they were involved in monitoring these people. So it's clear that, I mean, it's, there's, there's overwhelming evidence that, you know, American intelligence had every capability, ever all the information and every capability to stop this attack was war the main reason not to stop it was you know uh, again a, a, an attempt at geopolitical alignment the 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 driving factor behind not stopping it because i don't think anybody you know at this point it's all, it's it's become so widespread that like you know you hear bush did 911 it's just it's it's a fucking joke at this point I mean, but if you actually ask, like, if you could actually take take an unbiased poll, I'd venture to say, you know, at least sixty five percent of Americans don't think that the the narrative that we were told surrounding nine eleven was true. I mean, you know, what was again? What was the motive for the you know the complicity in the attack? Was it, or was it simply Bush going, hey? Our numbers are shit. We got we got to get something going here to get reelected. Was it we got to go into the Middle East? They have you know we got to you know we got to destabilize the region and fight proxy wars to keep this going. Like what was what do you think their motive was? It's various actually because I think if you looked at nine eleven from a strictly foreign policy advantage, yeah, foreign policy outlines like I said before. Um, Oded Yanan plan of Israel, Paul Wolfowitz doctrine of the defense policy guidelines, uh, the Bush doctrine of 2001, and then the Project for New American Century, which was a neoconservative think tank in 1999 about expansionism into uh, greater Eurasia and the Middle East. Uh, but you could see it from a foreign, uh, fossil fuel industri industrialist standpoint, where we get to go into these countries and basically regulate or take control of the oil fields in Iraq, for example, or even in Syria. Remember what Trump said when we took the Syrian oil fields, basically these are ours now. <laughs> wow. Um, but also you could take a look at it from the Saudi standpoint, the religious standpoint. 
where it's basically a Sunni versus Shia war um, to get rid of the influence of the Shia, because um, that's what we're attacking. We're attacking Shia-led countries, uh, Iraq, for example, e not yet, but Iran, which is also currently under threat, Lebanon, which is currently under threat, Syria, which we basically destroyed. Um, we can look at it from the Israeli standpoint. The Israeli standpoint is the entire Arab world is the enemy. And we need to have the United States come into these countries and basically decimate these countries on behalf of us and implement favorable leaders that would basically go with the Israeli and the West standpoint. So there's many eyes and many definitions you can attribute to 9-11 and you wouldn't be wrong. Um, basically, I think the big factor would be war because war basically creates all these invasive policies and laws that we see that come from it that supersede the constitution. And the only way we could super, super, uh, superimpose these laws is to uh, have a war that uh, supersedes the constitution. So in order for the Pentagon to basically enact its war powers, it needs a war. So there's always a conflict and whether it's facilitated. And I always believe that, look, um, just like Aetius the Greek once said, the first casualty of war is the truth. And that's usually the case. We'll never know the truth about all wars, but we can uh, ascertain some truth. And 9-11, we, we can ascertain some, but we're working on trying to get more. But when you have a government that re repudiates a narrative, as well as the overwhelming amount of disinformation that's coming from fringe conspiracy theorists, you're fighting a war on two fronts. And that's what I'm facing. It is, yeah, it is tough. I'm certainly in your position where you're attempting to, you know, be, you know, attempting to spill a counter narrative that's also not aligning with the, the crazy shit that you can find um, in the groups that support counter narratives. Um, it's actually, it's, it's a really, it's, it's a really useful tool for the government to sub, uh, subvert, uh, people who are, are anti-mainstream media narrative, anti-government, uh, to just utilize and shine a spotlight on and empower the, the, the people on the fringe who are saying the craziest of shit. That way it's very easy to disregard it and push it to the side and say, well, you know, and then you tie everybody else in, right? You say, oh, Adam, he's he's with them. He's with all of them, so you push it. He's QAnon. You, you push him over to, you know what I mean? So it's very easy, and it's and this is what American people do. It's very easy for Americans to just try to compartmentalize things. Things are very complex. 9-11 is very complex. Um, you know, the ins and outs of it regarding the Saudi government and our government and 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 Osama bin Laden and Muhammad, you know, and, and what Israel and what we had to do in, 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 inciting it. Like it's so goddamn complex that the overwhelming majority, I'm not entirely sure I could sit down and read a book that had all the facts in it. I don't know if I could just all the sudden after one read wrap my head around it. It's very, very complex. And so we compartmentalize. And so it's very easy for the government to just go, look at him over there pushing conspiracy theories. And then everybody goes, oh, wow, that's dangerous. That's that's dangerous misinformation. And they can do it around any narrative that they want to do it. Um, and it's a very useful tool. And they, I feel like they did it around COVID. And I feel like they're going to do it around. They're going to do it around this war. 
happening in Ukraine. They're going to do it from here on out. They've noticed that the the internet has breeded. It's a it's a double edged sword. We have much more freedom, much you know, much more uh, access to fringe media outlets and fringe information, and a lot of that fringe information is really useful and spot on and a lot of it is bullshit and so you know it's it's a it just like it's a tool for you and I to get accurate information um, that we would never get from the mainstream media it's also a useful tool for for the government and for the media itself the mainstream media conglomerate to push the the again this this idea that anyone who is countering what's outside of our narrative is just these people who believe that, you know, Hillary Clinton is a reptile. So, you know, how is it that, like, you know, and again, it's, you're probably the epitome, you and people like Scott Horton and people who, who really, like, just deal with cold hard facts are, are the epitome of, of, of utilizing fringe information for the good. And like I said, that pinned tweet, I, I recommend everybody go to Adam Fitzgerald. What's the, what's the Twitter handle? It's uh, underscore Adam Fitzgerald. That pin tweet, it's got like, it's damn near, I think it's like 3,970 some documents. And it's just, it's all, you, you know, it's all vindicated. It's all verified, you know, and, and there's, there's no bullshit there. It's not some Redditor saying, you know, 9-11, you know, Bush did 9-11 because Bush was, you know, he was horny one night and he just wasn't, you know, he was just, you know, it's, it's, let me ask your opinion about this. Speaking about, speaking of Bruce Ivins and the anthrax attacks, um, Operation Dark Winter, it was a military operation uh, carried out about, about basically the response to a bio, a biological weapons attack um, on America. Do you think it had anything to do with it? I feel because there's, you know, there was the what's the what was the pandemic one? It was it was like uh, what was you know what I'm talking about that military? Yes. Yeah. So because I kept hearing ties to that one, and then I would also hear it like, oh, remember Dark Winter right before the anthrax attacks? Agenda and, 21. Agenda 20. Yeah, it's exactly what the fuck it was. So it was Agenda 21 with COVID, and then there's Dark Winter with. Um, the anthrax attacks, do you give any legitimacy to the closeness of, of time between those things? I, you know what, man, I, I, I can't dismiss it totally. I'll give you an example in, in October of 2000, talk about too close for home. The Pentagon ran a pro, uh, operation and it was called Mascal, M-A-S-C-A-L, Project Mascal, where they were simulating a plane crashing into the Pentagon. And the response of the uh, state and local emergency first responders and how fast they would react. And is that saying, now, people, people would basically say, oh, you see, they knew. That's why they facilitated. The real conspiracy would be this that whatever I alluded to about the intelligence agency hearing operations from, say, Bin Laden's satellite phone or the house in Yemen, that that information could very well be given 
to the highest levels of government only, in which they tell the low levels of government about, why don't you run some drills and see how they re react to those drills. And so basically that's what happened. We saw that with the ballistic bombing, for example, that you brought up, they were running a drill on that day. The FBI was, uh, I think it was FBI. Yeah, it was the FBI. It was running oh, I, a didn't, drill. I didn't know that. They were running a drill. What were they running a drill on? A bomb attack. So it hmm. just goes to show you that could there be foreknowledge about these attacks and operations like Dark Winter, for example, which was basically, um, uh, I think it was a code, it was a code name for the bioterror attack, uh, which was simulated, uh, what was it, July, uh, July of 2001, um, which, where they carried out a, uh, like this mock attack of, oh, it was some biological agent. Uh, I think it was, an I think it was anthrax, it was anthrax, I believe. Okay, I'm, I'm not certain about what it was. But I think yeah, it was. It was simulating an attack like that. And then what happens uh, a couple of months later, uh, we see the anthrax attacks in uh, October of 2000, not too, not too long ago, it was just a couple of months. So is it is it basically just an attack that they knew about what was going to happen? Or like with the anthrax attacks, basically I think the government basically did that attack. Whereas 9-11, I basically believe that it was ordered by fundamentalists who were overheard by the intelligence agencies and that they manipulate the attacks. In other words, they allow for the attacks to happen by having air exercises because on 9-11, there was a number of different air exercises. Um, Amalgam Virgo 1. Oh, that's Amalgam right. Yeah, there was Global Guardian, Vigilant Guardian. It was a whole bunch. And all these exercises didn't stop until the attacks stopped. Those exercises still went through. After the attacks ended, then they went and defended the airspace. But at the same time, even when they had the Air National Guard responding, they weren't, they didn't have weapons at the ready because there wasn't a shoot down order until 10.30 a.m. So in other words, what I'm trying to allude here is this. With some attacks, some of these terrorist attacks, they're allowed to happen. And that the information is already known to specific intelligence agencies where they allow these attacks to happen and in response to those attacks is usually an over response by the United States in whether it becomes a military response, um, a legislature response, or an invasive uh, regulation of laws response, where we have to protect your civil liberties. In order to do that, we have to eliminate some of them. So do you, do you see now, did you see any of the uh, parallels certainly in the response uh, as far as you know government taking advantage of a crisis type thing with COVID-19 where they're like oh we got we got one folks now let's let's see what we can do because that's what it seems like it seems like with all of these things with 9-11 and the Boston bombing and and, and you know uh, anything to do with the fucking Middle East even Ukraine and Russia COVID-19 um it just seems like the government goes, hey, what, where can, where's the line? Where's the line? Let's find the line and go right the fuck up to it. Um, so do you see this, you know, this is as kind of a thing of, of a lot of these situations, uh, whether or not the government was actively involved in, 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 in plotting it or, 
or progressing the 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 scheme uh, more of a thing of let's just see what happens. Let's just kind of see what we can get away with type of thing. I would say that they're opportunists, for example, and at the same time, I think they're antagonists, uh, where they instigate uh, an incident, for example. I think that's exactly what the Ukraine-Russia crisis was. We instigated this attack by um, funding an army. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, Nate, I mean, look, let's go back to 1991, uh, where uh, the Secretary of State, James Baker, uh, not Secretary of State, uh, James Baker basically uh, said to Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO wouldn't inch one one inch closer to the uh, Eastern Europe, Europa. And what happened after 1991? NATO took over 14 countries. And then, well, and it was it was the the president after George H. W. Bush, Clinton, yes. was the one where we started expanding NATO. And right. he, even he, there's it's, he's on record like he was eyeing Ukraine even back then because Ukraine, if you look at it, like from a from the American. Uh, uh, military's perspective and American intelligence perspective, God, that's a strategic location. I mean, right between ch- it's good. It's a good location between twi- China and Russia. You're right on China's border. I mean, or uh, Russia's border. Excuse me. I mean, it's. I mean, it's just a beauty of a geopolitical location, right? And and you know, it was we weren't supposed to go past East Germany, and then we said, "Fuck that, we're going." And and yeah, what is it? Fourteen countries yeah 14 and um we were knocking on belarus's door and basically russia has their own like union so to speak where basically it's uh kazakhstan and i think uh uh belarus basically so they were trying to get ukraine to join and when they basically had a uh president victor yushchenko in 2010 was elected he was up for re-election in 2014 and basically what happened was the United States got involved through the CIA and basically created these protests. One of them was the maiden protests, which basically saw an uprising against the corruption of Viktor Yushchenko. Not to say that he was clean hands, but he was elected through a very clean election, so to speak. 2014 was anything but. It was basically a coup. So what happened was after the maiden protests ended, one week later, we saw another protest and this was called the Revolution of Dignity, where it was becoming much violent. And it's suggested, now it's coming out, that the CIA basically were training these separatists and neo-Nazis, not just in Ukraine, but through the Daily Beast article, which I referred to in a video I made, inside the United States. And this was a project that was going on in 2014 and 15. And the project got so big, they basically went to the uh, disputed territories of Lushank and Donetsk, and basically, we were, were uh, funding and training the neo-Nazis there. And so when the revolution of dignity happened, all the protests that were there in the capital of Kiev, some of these people that the CIA trained were basically were riling up the, uh, the protests, throwing motorcloth cocktails. And I think there was like 18 cops that were killed, and they raided the, uh, the, uh, the House of Parliament there. And Yushchenko had to leave. He left the, uh, he left the presidency. But before he left, he basically was in talks with the opposition party and basically said, I'll basically dissolute my own government to work with you. And then we'll create, you know, the government under the opposition party and myself. And the, basically these militants basically said, no, not enough. And so Yushchenko 
left uh, the presidency and in an overwhelming parliament vote, I think it was like 318 to nothing, uh, they, they made an interim government. And then later... Uh, the Which, by the uh, way, they, they didn't even get enough uh, uh, based on the Ukrainian constitution, Ukrainian law. At the time, they hadn't even received enough votes hmm. to 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 do an interim government. They just did it anyway. Hmm. And and what was interesting about Viktor Yushchenko uh, before he so America didn't they did have interest, but they didn't have as as much interest as they did before. So. Before all this happened, Ukraine was in talks with the EU and the IMF uh, to become more integrated with uh, the Western world economically. And one of the big things that this was in Oliver Stone's documentary, um, and I forget the name of it. God damn it. Um, it's probably gone off of YouTube now because they're fucking taking everything off. Uh, uh just look up Oliver. Ah, fuck. Cur- something. I don't know. God damn it. I'm sorry, Oliver. You're bigger than me. He makes more money than me. I don't give a fuck. Um, they were in talks with the IMF and the EU to get them to sort of westernize their economy. But the big thing was energy prices. If you know anything about Ukraine, Ukraine has had fucking things with energy. Energy prices have been high. And one of the things that would, would have happened if they would have westernized economically was their energy prices would have even they would have went up higher. And there would have been, there was no, uh, I forget what they said in the documentary, it was like there was no real prospect for an increase in wages. So it would have been basically, you know, a stagnating wage with higher energy prices. It didn't make any sense for them to westernize economically. So they turned toward Russia. They turned to Russia, specifically with energy. And I think that was sort of the turning point. That's what Yushchenko thought, because Oliver Stone interviewed him directly. And that's what, in his mind, was the turning point where America went, no, 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 no. no we're, not, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not having you really become economically inter- intertwined with Russia, because that's going to kill our chances of, of controlling the region. Right. And and, you know, if, if you know the, the history of Ukraine, I've, I've said this before in my solo episodes, it, it, Ukraine had a lot of trouble developing a political identity after the fall of the Soviet Union. There was a huge fracture between the eastern and the western regions. Um, there was a bit of a disagreement and, and, a, and a miscommunication on how things would play out uh, as far as governing after the fracturing of the Soviet Union. Eastern Europe or Eastern Ukrainians thought that you know, the power would be would be localized and not just a simple transfer from Moscow to Kiev. Um, Western Ukraine thought exactly that, that it was just going to go to Kiev. And then it was always it was always an issue between, you know, the the eastern Ukrainians who were ethnically Russian. They spoke Russian by all means. They were Russian and and it just never really got any better. And then you, you again, you, you throw in you throw on top of that. Uh, uh, certainly a, a good amount of, of political manipulation from Russia, and then moving it into the early 2010s, a lot of, of political influence from America leading up to the 2014-2015 coup, and then it just spiraled downward from there. And again, anybody who had a, had it was paying attention or, or was not, didn't have any interest in, in starting a war over there, they called it. 
with you know even even uh, uh, Clinton's former Secretary of Defense in 2016 came out and said, "Yeah, the expansion of NATO was a bad move," and that was his thing. I forget his fucking name, William William Perry. William Perry, he came out and was like, yeah, that was, we shouldn't have fucking, we got a problem on our hands now. And so it's just, it baffles me t- to see how everybody is all, they're like, did you see what Putin did unprovoked? And you're like, well, listen, I'm no fan of what he's doing, but unprovoked, I don't know if that's the right adjective, <laughs> you know, Adam? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, look, I think the film you were referring to is a Ukraine on fire. That's what it is. Yeah, Ukraine on fire. I said um, I've 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 literally mentioned like ten things and not known the names of it or any details, and then you know what they are. I can't tell you how many times I have come up empty when it comes to like certain things related to nine eleven. Um, I work as a concierge, for example, so there's guys there. I don't even know their first names, and meanwhile, their first names like Jim, but I can yeah. remember an Arabic name like. Ramsey bin Al Sheep. Yeah. <laughs> and my coworker, my coworker knows what I do and she makes fun of me. She tells me, Well, why don't you make believe everybody's here in Guantanamo Bay that you can remember their name? I think that's funny. That's uh, true. Yeah, pro- look, provoked, yeah, for sure. I mean, what what do you call uh NATO invasion of Eastern Europe when they promised that they wouldn't? What would you call the United States CIA basically arming and training uh the separatists and antagonists of the Ukraine? Uh, what would you call it? I would call it an actually antagonist of a country in which you want to poke a bear. Now the I call it spreading democracy, Adam. Indeed, uh, isn't that what we did with uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria? Oh Omar yes. Gaddafi in Libya. I mean, and look what we did to them. Uh, and by the way, yeah, Libya. Uh, Hillary Clinton's famous words: "He, we came. He, we saw. He died." And that's the first thing you could come up with. There is a major difference in between this line of thinking of the American people and that line of thinking in which we help vote for. And I, I wonder sometimes whether I blame them or I blame the people who vote in these people constantly time and time again. I don't know who's worse for where, but yeah, I would say that they're antagonists. The United States basically are. They knew exactly what they were doing and they knew that the Russians would basically react because they are a reactionary country. And it's all about psychology when you think about it. And yes, the United States employs psychologists and long-term foreign policy advisors and analysts, and they basically outline, you know, different scenarios. What would Russia do if we basically allowed NATO to come in and take over these countries? Would they find it as invasive? Well, let me ask you, if basically China or Russia basically uh, took over, you know, countries like Canada, for example, or Mexico and Hawaii and basically surrounded us, with military bases, how would you feel? Right. Well, why don't we ask everybody else? Yeah. Well, listen, the Canadians might have more freedom if the Chinese come in at this point, fucking after COVID nineteen. So. Um, <laughs> let me let me get your opinion on on one thing because listen, you you have a a a really good grasp on terrorist attacks and and the infiltration of terrorist plots by intelligence. Um, recently. A lot of people have been talking about January 6th and what the FBI may have had, you know, what role they played in it. Um, you know, it's it's there was this there's the, the, the video of Ray Epps 
uh, who is kind of this, he, you know, he was a guy who was on the FBI's most wanted for like a week and then he just got taken off randomly and he was never arrested or questioned or anything. And he's on video like the night before and the day of saying we have to go into the to, to, to the Capitol. We got to go into the building. We got to do that. We gotta, and it seemed to be really majorly provoking this this, you know, if you can call it an insurrection, this insurrection. Um, what are your, your thoughts on this? Is this a, just a textbook? We saw this formulating online and we, we saw, hey, we went, hey, this is a good opportunity for us to send some informants in, make it, you know, you, you know, we'll rile these people up, we'll discredit whatever they have to say, and that'll be that. Is there more at play here? regarding the election. What do you think about it? Oh, it's, I think it's a classic textbook, uh, uh, FBI infiltration of a radical right organization. Look, you have a lot of these radical right organizations here in the United States. There's no question this. Uh, there's been uh, a great uh, uh, reporting by the New York Times that basically uh, an Ali Soufan of the uh, Center Strategic Center um, and the Ali Soufan Center that basically uh, outlines the uh, radical right movements inside the United States. Well, if these movements exist, that means the FBI is basically involved or the uh, Department of Homeland Security. And what they do is they collect intelligence from within. Uh, I think the leader of the Proud Boys, forget his name, is basically an FBI informant. Enrique um, Tarrio. You, know yeah. you, you know what's fucking wild? I texted with him. Uh, because I wanted to interview him on my podcast and he never ended up getting back to me, but I forget exactly how I got his number. I think I got it off like a, I forget how I got it. I think I was on, I think I went on parlor and I got it or something. And like, I, I was talking with him back and forth and I got his number and I had his number and I don't think I have it anymore, but I remember when I saw, I saw I got arrested and I was like, Oh fuck. <laughs> yeah. his, dude, one of the guys who got arrested uh, Joe Biggs, who was like the guy under him, I did interview him on oh. my podcast, and that's on the Patreon. You got to pay for that shit, okay? Yeah, isn't I? Isn't Joe Biggs an FBI informant as well? If I I'm, I'm, I may be mistaken. He could have been. I don't think. He, I don't know if he was an FBI informant. I just know he got arrested. I don't think he was an FBI informant because he went to prison. He went to prison. Okay. Yeah. So, but the but these radical right wings, much like these uh, radical Islamic uh, cells that, that are inside the United States, they're infiltrated. And um, one such infiltration was back in 1993, the World Trade Center bombing, where they had an FBI informant by the name of Imad Salim, who basically involved uh, was the bodyguard of uh, Omar Abdel Rahman, the blonde sheikh, who was running an operation to bomb the World Trade Center and later the Landmarks plot, which was basically supervised by the FBI. And uh, when we spoke about uh, the intelligence agencies having enough information to stop operations, well, I mean, they could have stopped 93 bombing oh, totally. The FBI knew about this and they basically pulled the informant out of the operation. And he was warning them, listen, they're built, ready to build a bomb. They're gonna attack the World Trade Center. They pulled him out. And basically what happened was he was supposed to be building the bomb and he was pulled out. And that's when they got Ramsey Youssef to come from Pakistan to the United States, and he built the bomb. But by the way, the FBI was still watching from afar this radical fundamentalist group, and the bombing still happened. Um, 
they're not known. These radical right-wing groups are basically catering to like, I hate to say, it, but the less illiterate, the illiterate of, of society. The These retarded. Who, I, I don't like saying that. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, the illiterate. That's fine. See, you remember the details for me, and I say the vulgar things for you. You okay? Oh, I agree. Uh, yeah, the illiterate of society, and these people are basically not religious. You know, they 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 proclaim evangelical Christianity, which is basically you know same as Wahhabi Islam, nothing to do with Islam and this ideology, this radical ideology. They have so much similarities between the two, and they hate each other, and yet there's so much similarities. Much like the radical left and radical right, they have so much similarities. Right. Nevertheless, um, these militants are basically always infiltrated by these intelligence agencies because they are easy to infiltrate, very easy. Uh, Proud Boys or the, um, uh, what's that one group, the, the percenters, what, what is it, the one percenters or the, the militant group that was on the U.S. Capitol. They came with the big uh, troops. They were making their way up in the Capitol. Um, and all, you know, look, was there an intelligence ring in January 6th? I'd be I'd be appalled if there wasn't. Yeah, I think there yeah. was a contingent of either FBI or Department of Homeland Security that knew exactly what was going to happen even before it happened. I think they knew. And that's why you saw that guy, Ray Epps, that you mentioned. I, the FBI, what was it? The investigation into January 6th, where I, who was the one congressman talking to Jacqueline McGuire, the FBI? He's basically telling her, who's Ray Epps? And she basically says, I don't, we don't know. We, we don't, we can't say any more than that. Oh, I think it was Ted Cruz who was questioning. Was it him. Ted yeah. Cruz? I yeah, think I so. Mean, or he like Rubio or somebody. Yeah, yeah, well, I think it was Rubio. I think you're right. Uh, basically, he's telling Jacqueline McGuire, who is uh, Ray Epson, basically Stonewall. Man, what does that tell you? There's an investigation either currently with Ray Epps or Ray Epps is working at some level with the FBI. Uh, but even when he was saying that, you know, you got people surrounding him saying, Fed, Fed, they knew, you know, they were, in other yeah. words, it, it's basically instigating a riot where the riot wasn't going to take place. And calling that a an insurrection is, is an insult, basically. Yeah. An insurrection is when the United States government allows for other countries to be, in, to be infiltrated by the U.S. military. That's an insurrection. What happened in Iraq was an insurrection. What happened in Syria, Libya. Afghanistan, those are insurrections. What happened on January 6th? We made some people nervous. Wow, that's exactly where you want people in Congress. We want them nervous because, by the way, and by the way, I hate to say this, but what a wasted effort. And I told this to Reed Coverdale when he interviewed me once, was that January 6th was a wasted effort because you could have had a much bigger amount of people, much more amount, unified no less if you went there say to protest against the stimulus checks that they gave you for covid which was 1600 bucks where they nancy Pelosi basically said don't spend it all in one shot well guess what that doesn't pay the rent here in new york city usually the rent here is 2300 so to give you a pittance and basically tell you that that's all you're deserving to get the left and right should have just went as one and basically raided the capital saying Give us ten thousand. Yeah, that's what we deserve. But it was a waste effort for a stupid, um, you know, overturned election and whatnot. Every election is fabricated in the United States. 
I mean, your vote really doesn't count. I mean, wasn't that the case with um, uh, with with uh, with Joe Biden, 86 million votes and Donald Trump got 83 million? I mean, all of a sudden, these are the most popular presidents and uh, electors of all time. Out of nowhere, we're just prior four years ago. We had the largest non-voting turnout in history. And all of a sudden, we had the most turnout in history. Give me a break. I know it is. Oh. It is insane. I, it's it's I, I think we should storm the Fed because they keep oh, printing yeah. money and they're fucking us. They're basically stealing us by by disparaging the value of the dollar. Every dollar that you make, they th- it's thievery that they can print money and take away the value of the money that you sure. make and spend and and and, you know, use on a daily basis we should storm the fed if they if i tell you what i'll fucking you want to see an insurrection get the fucking let's let's get reed up this fucking grand up at fucking uh, uh, the uh, federal reserve let's that's an insurrection not fucking you know the 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 mega shaman you know the january 6th shaman walking around in the fucking house chambers for christ they say oh it's like oh it's a it was illegal for the the shaman to walk around in the house chambers it's like do you know how many illegal things have happened to the house chambers war crimes have been formulated at the house chambers enough let the fucking you know he's mentally yeah. ill sure i don't know how, you know i don't know what his reading level is but you know if he walked around in the house chambers who gives a fuck really well why is that such an infraction i mean Look, if you know, I'll make them happy by mentioning them. Isn't this? Uh, isn't that the people's house? Shouldn't shouldn't right, we, right. the people, be able to walk around every once in a while? And what they steal? I think the one guy who was waving, he stole like a podium. Was he stole Nancy Pelosi's podium, and right. God and God bless that man because you know right. what? She had a hell of a she had a yell of a hell of a year with stocks. I'm sure she can. I sure can. I'm sure she can shell out for a fucking new podium. Okay. I mean, my goodness, if that's the biggest crime of the American people, then boy, I mean, wait until the real crimes become come to light. Uh, right. If you want a real insurrection, I mean, why don't you invite the you know what, what the Tower Gang pod of Jose Galson and Toad and all them yeah. to come raid the Capitol? <laughs> Not so. Every podcast, I mean, every podcast they do is a fucking insurrection. Every podcast they do, every podcast Tower Gang does is a fucking war crime, and it deserves to be fucking. It, it deserves to be incriminated by the world by the world court. We need to oh. be we need to be sending these people to gulag. Enough now. I had they had me on, uh, and they're they're a good bunch. I yeah. like those guys. They're they're great. Let me ask you something because we've we've discussed nine eleven. We've discussed January six. We've discussed, you know the war in Iraq, what's happening in Ukraine. We've discussed the Boston bombing. Do you have any strong feelings surrounding the Oklahoma city bombing? Oh yes. Actually the, the perfect person to interview this is DJ Tomo Denny, who's done extensive work on this. Um, Cause my and- main interest in that was a man named Terrence Yeeke. Uh, who oh yes, was the, he was the is, is this the guard or he was the he was an officer who was for, like, yeah, one cop, of the first right. on the scene, um, and and you know from the very beginning he was running in and out getting people right. out saving people and then right away he was he told his wife he's like there's something fucked here yeah and then he started compiling evidence and he was getting testimony from people and then all of a sudden 
you know, he quote unquote committed suicide. And how did he do it, Adam? Well, you know, he drove his truck out to sort of a, a, a remote area, uh, dirt road, right? Pulled off to the side and then slit his wrists and himself all over. There's blood everywhere in the truck and, and, and like a lot, like bleeding out blood. Mm. And then he said, he decided, I guess, you know what? That's not enough. I don't want to die in my truck. I want to die. I want to get some fresh air before I die. I'm going to get out of the truck and take a jog. So he gets out of the truck, um, tosses the keys in it, locks it, closes the door, hops over a barbed, uh, a barbed wire fence, jogs a mile, and then shoots himself twice. I mean, that's a hell of a suicide. And then, by the way, and then when the Oklahoma City Police Department get there, they don't find the gun. Terrence Eakey, he was, I guess he was fooling them. He's playing a joke on them. He hid the gun from the, from the Oklahoma City Police Department. But then when the FBI got there, they found the gun. But it was only a few feet from the body, so how did the Oklahoma City Police Department miss it? I mean, it was, it's just truly insane. And so, you know, in this whole thing where Timothy McVeigh acted alone after multiple, multiple people came forward uh, telling, uh, telling officials they saw him with like four or five other guys. And he was and he it, there was one report of uh, of him in, in, actually assembling the bomb. And I forget which 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 park it was, but it was like a park in Oklahoma City where people saw him assembling the bomb with other people. I mean, how fucking <laughs> Jesus Christ, how 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 bullshit of a story does it has to be before the American people in mass go that is clearly lies and we want to know what's happening here. Because the Oklahoma, yeah. listen, with 9-11, it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit easier for the government to cover that shit up. With the Oklahoma City bombing, I mean, the shit was happening locally and people were just seeing it. And these are people from Oklahoma. I mean, these are people who just saw it and were like, well, fuck, that's just out of, that's just out of the ordinary for me. And they would go on. But it was like, like people saw, like multiple people, multiple people saw him assembling a bomb in a national park in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City, or not a national park, but a park in Oklahoma City with multiple men, and they came forward and said that, and they just went, yeah, no, that, no, you don't know, it's, you don't know. It's like, how, how crazy of a narrative do they have to construct before the American people go, hey, what's going on here? You know, especially, and, and how, how bad does it have to be? Before they say, hey, what's going on here in real time? Not five years, ten years later. You know, because anybody nowadays can go 9-11 was bullshit. Sure. Anybody nowadays can agree with you, Adam. But when it happened, see, that takes a little bit more. So how, like, I mean, Jesus Christ, the Oklahoma City bombing to me was even more obvious than 9-11. Let me give you a story about pre-Oklahoma pre City bombing that is actually true. And that may lead to some understanding of the multiple conspiracies that have arisen from it. And this is actually a true story. Uh, Terry Nichols, who is the co-conspirator of the Oklahoma City bombing, actually traveled to the Philippines in November of 1994. And because his wife was Filipino, he went to the city of Cebu. And while he was there, it's alleged that members of Abu Sayyaf, uh, had met him. Now, one of these members is actually a now, Philippines. Now, what is, what is Abu Sayyaf? 
Abu Sayyaf is a terrorist organization in the Philippines that has links with Al Qaeda. Um, it actually was created in. So the, that's got to be the southern Philippines. Yes, because the northern be, uh, Philippines are like they're Catholics. I have a good right, friend yes. who was who was born and raised in the northern Philippines, and the, I, he told me about the whole the whole the whole dichotomy of northern southern Philippines. Oh well, he'd be right because Abu Sayyaf basically were bombing Christian churches in the early nineties. Um, but uh, Terry Nichols had visited Cebu City in, in the Philippines. And basically while he was there, um, it's alleged to this informant whose name is Edwin Angeles, who went by the name Abu Yusuf in Ibrahim Yusuf, uh, Jacob Ibrahim in the group. And he was like the third in command of the group. And he basically met this white guy and he called him the farmer. And when he was shown by a, a picture of Terry Nichols, he said, yes, this is him. Terry Nichols went to the Philippines and had met with Ramsey Youssef, the bomber of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And it's alleged by the- and, and he was a part of that group in the Southern Philippines? Well, yes, because uh, Ramsey Youssef went to train bomb training manuals with Abu Sayyaf okay, at, the behest, gotcha. at the behest of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, his uncle. Mm. Ramsey Youssef's uncle is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and both of them went to the Philippines. Uh, all, to open up all, bank accounts. It's all tied in. Yeah, it's amazing when you see it's a small world, isn't it? Yeah, really. <laughs> um, and yes, uh, when and it's alleged that Terry Nichols learned to build a with with um, uh, Terry McVeigh that they learned to build a uranium nitrate bomb, and mm -hmm. Ramsey Youssef basically showed them how to do it. I think it was three weeks later uh, that they built the uranium nitrate bomb that was used in the Oklahoma City bombing, the same bomb that was used in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing was used in the Oklahoma City bombing. Same bomb, same truck, yellow rider truck. Coincidence? Wow. Could be, but I think these coincidences actually link. And Richard Clark, who's the counterterrorism uh, center uh, under Clinton and Bush Jr., basically said that these reports were actually true and that Terry Nichols did indeed go to the Philippines in November of 94 in Cebu City. And he says that it would be defy belief or disbelief that he didn't meet with Ramzi Youssef. But the real link is that the Edward Angeles, the Philippines police or uh, uh, military commander, basically who was an informant uh, inside Abu Sayyaf, who had met or seen Terry Nichols, nicknamed the farmer, basically meet with Ramsey Youssef. And that's just one conspiracy. On the day itself of Oklahoma City, uh, there were news reports, initial news reports, later uh, blanked it out, but initial news reports, which are basically still on YouTube, and um, that basically said that there were multiple bombs found inside the building. Wasn't there a guy, I think I had this pulled up, maybe I didn't, there was a guy who uh, police basically accidentally tortured to death. I forget his name, but this was for, for had to do with the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, he, he was he was a a, a, a prisoner. Yes. Um, fuck. I see. I you know who I'm talking about. I don't know his name, but they basically accidentally tortured this man to death, thinking he was somebody else who. Timothy McVeigh actually knew 
and identified and said that they said the reason why that guy was probably tortured was probably because they they thought that he was this other guy who had information regarding Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. So they accidentally tortured this guy to death. Who lo- I will I saw the pictures of the two. They did look fairly similar. Let's give you know let's give the FBI a break. Maybe you know they looked similar. Fair enough. They were built the same. Looked similar. I forget his name. Kenneth Trentadu. Kenneth Trentadu. That is exactly right. He uh, they mis- they was mistaked him for a guy who who supposedly was like involved with the FBI, if I'm not mistaken, who was working with Timothy McVeigh um, uh, leading up to the Oklahoma City bombing. If I'm not mistaken, and they mistake, they, they said this Kenneth T- Trentadu, who was a, who was a, he was in prison for another reason. I forget why. Um, they mistaked him for that guy, and they just fucking tortured. They beat the shit out of him. They fucked him up bad. I mean, bad. Like his autopsy, they said it was suicide, but Jesus, no, no, it was bad. He, like, yeah, he had, Kenneth. Actually, the story behind Trentadu was that he was mistaken for. Um, Richard Lee Guthrie, who's a member of the Aryan Republican Army, that was a white yep. supremacist group uh, that robbed banks in the Midwest in the 1990s. Uh, Trentadue and Guthrie um, shared a resemblance uh, in physical resemblance. And that um, what happened was the brother of Trentadue did an investigation on his own. And so what happened was uh, the brother's name is uh, Je- uh, Jesse, Jesse Trentadue. And he met the acquaintance of David Paul Hammer, who's actually a convicted murderer and friends with uh, Timothy McVeigh. And they were both imprisoned at uh, Terry Hart, Indiana. And it was Hammer who made sworn declarations to the FBI, alleging that McVeigh told him about conspiracies involving the Oklahoma City bombing and the Aryan Brotherhood. And because Guthrie was a member of the Aryan Republican Brotherhood, the FBI basically killed Trentadue instead, mistaking him for Richard Lee Guthrie. And, and McVeigh, they, uh, McVeigh was a, a vet, and he, mm-hmm. like, I remember, I forget which documentary I was watching, but I, I didn't know that he, like, you know, he he had a, a, a real anti-government sentiment to him because he watched Waco. He drove yes. to Waco, Texas, and watched... What basic what here's what happened, folks. The ATF fucking burned children and women alive. Mm. Okay, that's what fucking happened. Let's not beat around the bush here. That's what fucking happened. I'm not saying Dave Koresh was a good guy. <laughs> I'm not mm. saying I'm not saying he should buy his book. Okay, if he had a book, I'm sure he wrote a few. Um, did they get published? I don't know. I'd publish them. I'd read them. Yeah. I'm sure he's got a. I'm sure he's got an interesting perspective on on life. Uh, had, uh, but the ATF, you know, they burned women and children alive. Uh, in what was a display of power toward groups who want to dissent from normal society and government rule, and so Timothy McVeigh who was clearly already mentally ill, you throw that layer onto it, 
along with what I'm sure was a little bit of PTSD, and then throw in some fucking little, you know, a dash of white supremacy, and then a little bit of FBI help. Well, shit. Now you've got the perfect. Now that's a bomb. Now that's a that's a good cocktail for a bomb. Sure. All you need to do is push the envelope a little bit. But that's that's what happens with radical fundamentalists of the far right and far left is that you already have the ingredients. All you need to do is basically light the match and then they do the work for you. And then you take advantage of the effects afterwards. And this is usually the case with every single major terrorist event or domestic event that includes violence is that you know that you're actually infiltrating this group. You're monitoring this group. You know what's going to happen before it happens. You basically allow it to happen without any interference and then basically take advantage of the, um, the res- or, or respond after the event has taken place. And then you basically what you're doing is you're taking advantage of a situation that you already know what's going to happen before it even happens. And that's usually the case. That happened. That's Oklahoma City bombing. That's the that's old Hegelian, Hegelian dialectic, folks. That's right. And that's usually, that's 93, that's Oklahoma City, that's 9-11. And that's with every single terrorist event, is that most terrorist events are already known to the intelligence agencies. And when, you know, that was a big complaint with the CIA. They went before the 9-11 Commission. And I remember Director Tennant basically saying, you know, we just didn't have the manpower and that's why we lacked information. Well, guess what? Yeah, they lacked manpower. They had an overwhelming amount of information. Can you imagine if they had a lot of manpower? Well, guess what? After 9-11, they basically expanded. But so did the NSA. So did the FBI. So did the DIA. And so did every single state and local federal agency after 9-11. So just imagine all those agencies before that didn't have the manpower and collected so much data. Now look at the manpower they have and look at the amount of data that they collect. The NSA, for example, has so much metadata that they built a huge building in Pine Bluff, Utah. I always tell people generally, you ever heard of the Utah Data Center? And I'll get a deer in the headlights look or a puzzled look. What the hell is that? I've never heard of it. It's, yeah, it's a, you never heard of it? Nope. It's a, it's a building that collects all your emails, all your text messages, and all your phone calls for life. Jesus Christ. Well... That's damning and negative. <laughs> That's <laughs> ominous and sinister and insidious and any other title of a horror movie I can think of. Yes. Um, they're build- it's, in fact, they're building another one. That's how much data they have. Well, they better fucking not do it near me because I don't want taxes to go up. Uh, <laughs> listen, Adam, tell yes. everybody where they can find you. They can find your great work. They can find those documents. And I encourage everybody, truly, sift through those documents. You're not going to get through 3,900 of them, but, you know, they're, it, it, it's truly when you start piecing the stuff together, like I said, a lot of this stuff gets very interesting when you can kind of make the connections when you, you know, because like I said, even even just during this conversation, that we, we found out, that, you know, the connections that these different, stories have and it is kind of crazy how you know all of this is related and and Mm. and and how 
intertwined and interconnected a lot of these stories are, a lot of these quote unquote conspiracies are, um, you know, and, and Adam is a good source for, you know, uh, 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 valid and verified information. You don't have to worry about getting bullshit information. You're not going to get the QAnon shit. You're not going to get the fucking reptilian shit. Although Hillary Clinton is a reptile, and she probably, unfortunately, will survive COVID because I don't think reptile. I don't think reptiles are really hit hard with COVID. I don't think they can get COVID. They have a different, you know, their immune system. It's different. They've evolved. They used to. They were. They walked with dinosaurs, folks. Hillary Clinton walked with dinosaurs. I think she's going to be okay uh, from COVID nineteen. And if she isn't, hey. Inshallah, she shall not be. But, you know, tell everybody where they can find you, okay? Sure. Uh, well, Adam Fitzgerald on YouTube. Um, on Twitter, it's underscore Adam Fitzgerald. Um, and like uh, you said, on uh, in my pinned tweet, you could link to the WordPress, download whatever you need. Um, also, my podcast is called The Darkened Hour. Um, and I have I write articles on Medium, but I haven't wrote one in a while. And it's Adam Fitzgerald. And usually, if you... Oh, to make it easier, just Google my name and put 9-11 and I come right up. Um, and just to say, why am I doing this? Like, why, why am I doing all this is basically what I'm trying to do, basically, is try to educate a public about this specific event, this one event. And I think be, the, the why I did it was because when I first came into 9-11, I saw so much disinformation and misinformation and which is spreading through the global community. And, you know, I'm a small channel, you know, and I thank you so much for even interviewing me yeah, and uh, the kind things that you said for me. But I'm trying to build a new movement of educated people in which I'm hoping in the future, those people that follow me don't follow me anymore and become leaders and open up their own channels and take that information and reach a far bigger audience than I ever could. And that's how you build a real movement and then you can make real change, but you can't make real change if you're if you're spreading disinformation and misinformation without even realizing. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I do. I, I think that you're bringing to light a lot of information that's hard to find. Um, you know, on two layers. One, it's hard to find uh, good information because a lot of it is covered up and buried, and then a lot of it is is also sort of sort of uh, 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 mixed in with irrelevant and bullshit information and it's hard it can become very difficult to sift through that and and construct an accurate and uh, you know a, a fact-based narrative surrounding something as as complex as 9/11 or the Boston bombing or whatever it may be um, so again I encourage everybody to go and check Adam Fitzgerald's page out listen to his podcast everything he writes like i said start you got to start slow i only read a few of those documents you can't do 3900 in a week but you can start um you know read one here or there and just kind of start to 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 you know uh uh get a good um foundation for at least at least get a good foundation as to what type of bullshit our government is up to because that will give you at least if, if at the very least what Adam's information will will give you is a a much more 
accurate perspective on what the government and the mainstream media will feed you surrounding any particular controversy, and it will allow you to think clearer and more rational on any type of crisis event or event uh, happening now or moving forward. That's what I'll say. So, Adam, thank you for joining me. Thank you for carving out some time. Um, and I encourage everybody to go check you out, and I encourage everybody to go check me out on my Twitter and my Instagram and my Patreon. And if you haven't done that already, you fuckers better. And I'm battling a cold, and I have a cold, and that matters because I'm selfish, and it's about me. I'm fighting a cold, and I have a sinus headache, so I have to end this right now. <laughs> thank you, Adam. We're going to do oh, it again, all right? Thank you very much. Thank have you a, very much. Yeah, of course, of course.